All right, so we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and I want to get us caught up just a little bit. The last several weeks, we've been looking at the, the first part of this chapter, and we've kind of bounced around a little bit, looking at it from different angles. And so I want to kind of take our minds back to where we were a couple of weeks ago when Jeremy showed us the, the timeline of these events and what was going on as uh, we're leading up to our passage today in verse 14 of chapter 2. And so if we can pull up that slide, we can remind ourselves that this church at Corinth was planted by Paul on his second missionary journey. And he spent some time with these Corinthians. He got to know them. He got to love them. He was there with them for, for 18 months. We can go and read about that in Acts chapter 18, this great amount of time that Paul spent with them. However, Paul didn't stay there with them. He left and he went to, to Ephesus. He went back to, uh, to Jerusalem and he, he made his rounds. And while he was gone, he wrote two more letters to the Corinthians. He wrote the lost letter that we don't have. We can read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And then he wrote 1 Corinthians itself, these two letters back to this church that, again, he, he cared for. He wanted to shepherd and guide, even from afar when he wasn't there. He had a concern, concern for this church. And then we uh, know that Paul made a, a second trip back to Corinth, what he calls his painful visit. Uh, mentioned later on in, in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians 2, or 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And here in 2 Corinthians 2, we see that he references it as well, back up in verse 1, when he says that he determined this for his own sake, that he would not come to the Corinthians again in sorrow. So he realized, and he's referencing this time that he did come to them in sorrow and saying, that was a, that was a difficult trip. That wasn't easy. That wasn't necessarily fun. And I don't want to do it again. And because of his desire not to do it again, he sent them a third letter, what is called and referred to as the, the sorrowful letter or the harsh letter. And this letter was likely sent along with Timothy or Titus rather, that Titus was the one who was carrying this letter, delivering it to the Corinthians and again, hoping to kind of uh, set things straight with them before Paul made this third visit to Corinth that he was planning on. He didn't want to come to them again in sorrow. Well, after this painful visit where Paul had to confront some things and didn't necessarily go well, and after having sent this severe, harsh letter through Titus, uh, Paul was a little bit concerned. Remember, this is a, a city that at this point, Paul himself, he didn't even want to go to. We're told back in 1 Corinthians 16 that Apollos didn't want to go there. Paul asked Apollos, well, will you go there? And Paul said, no way. I'm, I'm not doing that. I am, I'm going to stay away from Corinth. I'm not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole, right? Uh, this, is, uh, this gives Paul reason for concern. He was certainly concerned. Well, let's go back and read the, the couple of verses leading up to our passage today. 2 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 12. Paul says, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened to me in the Lord... I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. So perhaps you'll remember from our, our past studies that Paul was hoping to meet Titus in Troas. And so he went there already with a, a troubled heart, with a heavy heart, wondering well, what, what happened down in Corinth and what news is he going to come back with? Is he going to come back at all? Or are they going to treat him kindly and nicely? And he got to Troas and, and Titus wasn't there. And so his heavy burdened heart 
continued to be heavy and burdened. If he wasn't concerned before, he was certainly concerned now. And we have a, a big gap, a, a parentheses of sorts in this letter of Paul's. And he kind of picks up this thought later on in, in chapter 7. And so let's go there and see chapter 7, verse 5. Chapter 7, verse 5. And Paul says here, kind of referring back to him leaving Troas after not finding Titus and going on to Macedonia. He says in 2 Corinthians 7, 5, that for when we came for when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without and fears within. But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus, not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So that's that's good news. That's great news. Titus did meet him in Macedonia, and not only did he meet him, he came back with a good report. However, at this point in Paul's writing, in his recollection of this account back in chapter 2, Titus hadn't come yet. So Paul was still concerned. He's still where he is in, in verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 7, that um, he had no rest in his spirit. They, they were conflicted. They had conflicts without. They had fears within. Verse 6 says that, he was even depressed. This is how Paul describes himself. He said that he was depressed. And so going back to 2 Corinthians 2, 13, again, it says that he had no rest for his spirit because he wasn't finding Timothy there. And we need to keep this in mind as we approach our text today. This is Paul being down, right? Paul being restless, being um, concerned. And then we get to our, our passage here in verse 14, he starts off with these, these great words. He says, but thanks be to God. In the midst of this restlessness, in the midst of his depression, he's able to say, thanks be to God. This God who always leads us in triumph in Christ, who manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. I want to focus on those, those two words there. God always leads, always, at all times. And not only at all times, but at the end of that verse, in every place, that Christ is triumphant. Not just at one point in time, Christ is always triumphant. And Christ is triumphant not just in one place, but in every place. Always at all times, Christ our Lord is triumphant. And we see that um, he, he never leaves his people. He is always with his people. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 tell us this pretty clearly. Hebrews 13, 5 talks about how we are in Christ. It says at the end of that verse, it says, I will never desert you and I will never forsake you. In verse 6, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? This is a, a verse that uh, I memorized when I was a, a teenager working with children in Child Evangelism Fellowship, and they taught us this verse and how we could teach the kids this verse. Uh, I often, when I'm trying to memorize scripture, I think, well, I have to memorize a whole verse, and I have to do it word by word, and not just a verse, the, the passage. I want to get the full context, but it's helpful and beneficial even to memorize parts of verses, and so we would teach the kids using Hebrews 13 that God will never leave me. And we can tell them, oh, you, you can insert your name there. God will never leave Tyler, right? Or I am always with you. Uh, these are basic truths that we need to remember and we can remember because Jesus is triumphant. Not 
just sometimes, not just some places. Jesus is always triumphant everywhere. And going back to our, our passage, talking about how we can give thanks to God because he leads us in triumph in Christ. I want to spend some time talking about this, this word triumph because this is a, a technical term that refers back to a, a Roman triumph. Now, a Roman triumph was uh, designed with the, the purpose of giving out the, the highest possible honor in Rome, in all of Rome. You guys have heard of the, the Medal of Honor or the, the Purple Heart that we have in America to, to honor our, uh, our troops. Well, this really pales in comparison to a Roman triumph. A Roman triumph, again, it was the highest honor that you could possibly hold in Rome. Now, Romans, they really uh, elevated the, the political system. And they had a high view of the political system. But to receive a Roman triumph, this was even more prestigious than to be a, a member of the Senate, to have a seat in the Senate, or to be one of the two Roman consuls, the highest elected official within Rome. These were uh, inferior to having received a, a Roman triumph. To have received a Roman triumph is really to be put on the, the same level. as to be up there with the emperor. It's a high honor to receive in the the Roman system. And what a Roman triumph was is essentially a, a parade. It was a big, grand, massive parade that was given to a Roman general. But not just to any Roman general. This had to be an accomplished Roman general, one who had gone out and he had conquered a new Roman territory for Rome to, to take in as its own territory. And in his conquering of this territory, he had to have killed at least 5,000 people. So it had to be a, a big conquering feat uh, one which acquired a, a sizable portion of land. And this, uh, these were only a, a couple of the requirements. They had to jump through several hoops in order to receive this, this Roman triumph, this honor of a Roman triumph. But if it was granted to the, the Roman general, then he would be given permission to enter into the city of Rome with while maintaining his, his authority as a Roman general and with his army, which wouldn't happen otherwise. If you enter into the, the city limits as a, a Roman general, then you are, are forfeiting your authority as a Roman general. You're just entering as a, a regular old citizen, unless you've been given this, this privilege, this honor of a Roman triumph. And this was a big deal. This didn't happen very often, that there was a Roman triumph. In fact, the whole city would shut down, and everybody would come to this big grand parade to see this Roman general being honored and being uh, hailed as this victor. And what they would do is they would have several different wagons that would make their way through the city. Again, it's kind of like a parade. And they had a very specific order in which these wagons would come into the city. First, they would have a wagon that had these 3D models of this new conquered territory, what it looks like, and these big uh, billboard-sized paintings of this new land that Rome had now acquired so they could show all the common people, this is what we have. This is what we now have as, as part of our land, as part of Rome. And they would show off the, the very best parts of this newly acquired land. And along with this, they would have different animals that represent this new territory. And they really prized the 
the weird exotic animals. So if they could bring in some elephants or some giraffes or some funky looking animals, that really got the crowd going, right? And so they would parade these animals, they would parade these, these 3D models. The second wagon that would come through would have all the politicians. Again, Rome prides its pol political parties, right? So they would have the politicians coming through, giving their stamp of approval on what it is that Rome had acquired and getting a little bit of honor for themselves because that's what politicians do. Uh, following the, the politicians, they would have a bunch of musicians. It's a parade, right? Big grand parade, so they'd have trumpeters, they'd have uh, drummers, people that are, are getting the crowd hyped up for this big parade. Following the mu musicians, they would have all the spoils of war, all of the, the gold and different spices that they had acquired from this, this new region. Uh, in, in 70 AD, when Titus came through with his Roman triumph, he had the, the golden lampstand along with other artifacts and utensils that were taken from the, the Jewish temple. He had those taken along and shown, well, look, I, I conquered Israel and I got all these artifacts with us. Um, they were just trying to, to, again, hype up the crowd, look at all the spoils that we've now acquired for Rome. In addition to the, the material spoils, they would have human spoils of war. They would have prisoners or, or captives that they had taken from this territory, the ones that they hadn't killed. And if they had any uh, leaders within that territory, any officials, they would uh, deck them up in their, their royal garb, put their crown on their head, and really mock them and, and make a mockery of them as they're parading them through the city. Well, after all of these other wagons had gone before, finally, at the end, the general himself, uh, dressed in all purple, um, symbolizing the fact that he was uh, up there with royalty, he would come through on his wagon uh, just at the end, like Santa Claus in our, our American parade, right? The big deal comes at the end, uh, walking in front of his army saying, this is what I brought to you, this is what I've done, this is what I have accomplished. And they would make their way to the, the Circus Maximus, this huge stadium that could seat 250,000, far more than any stadium that we have today, uh, five times larger than the, the Colosseum. This was a, a big deal. Again, this was really rare for somebody to receive a, a Roman triumph, this kind of honor within Rome. And this is the, the imagery that Paul is borrowing from as he's writing this passage, as he's saying that Christ is the triumphant one, as he's saying that Jesus is the one, the king who leads us in triumph, as he says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. He wants us to get this picture within our minds. That's what he's uh, telling to the, the Corinthians, that Christ is truly the triumphant one. Let's look at Colossians chapter 2, another place, the only other place actually, where Paul uses this same word of, of triumph. In Colossians 2, Starting in verse 13, it says that when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him. So we see here that Jesus is the triumphant king because of what he has done at the cross, because he has taken those certificates of decrees that are presented against us, and he has nailed them to the cross. He is victorious in the cross. It's because of his work on the cross that he is able to lead in triumph, that he is the triumphant king. 
we see going back to our text that this triumphant king is none other but Jesus. And we as believers, as Christians, we find ourselves in Christ. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. These are two of the, the most beautiful words that are ever paired together in Scripture. To be in Christ is a, a great blessing. Uh, again, back in, in Colossians chapter 2, the passage we were just reading in, it talks about how we've been buried with Him in death, and we've been raised up with Him in, our, in His resurrection. Um, if we were to go look at Ephesians, um, we could see in the first couple chapters of Ephesians that this phrase is used a dozen times, just in those two chapters alone. And he talks about how uh, our lights have been, our hearts rather, have been enlightened by him, that we have been blessed with an inheritance through Jesus' resurrection, that he has made us alive because of his resurrection, that he has renewed us, he has redeemed us, he has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous son, into the heavenly realms, that we are victorious because of Christ, that Christ, the victorious one, is who we find ourselves in that we have this vicarious victory in Jesus, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He is a victorious one. He is the triumphant one. And you and I, if we are in Christ, we find ourselves to be triumphant. In Ephesians 2 verse 7, it says that he might show, so that he might show the surpassing riches of his greatness, of his grace rather, in kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. So he shows us his grace, those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And going back to our, our passage in 2 Corinthians 2, it talks about how it is not only in us that he has shown us his grace, uh, but it is also through us that he spreads his grace. I think this is really the, the crux of this passage, that he shows his grace not only in us and towards us, but also through us. We see this in the, the latter part of verse 14, that he manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. And I really like how the, the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, puts it. It says that through us spreads in every place the fragrance that comes from knowing him. That's a, a little bit different, right? This, this phrasing, the fragrance that comes through us. Oh, what does that mean? I think it's Again, another reference back to this Roman triumph and what was taking place at this Roman triumph. Let me share with you this quote from Murray Harris. He says, Included in the victory procession of this Roman triumph were those who burned incense along with the triumphant route, triumphal route. Others who carried the display and displayed spices brought from the conquered regions and yet others who scattered garlands of flowers and sprinkled perfume along the streets. So you just picture all these things happening. That's a, a pretty smelly situation, right? You have people offering up incense. You have people throwing flowers. You have these spices that are being paraded through the streets, uh, perfume that's being blasted all over the place. This was a very fragrant uh, parade, a very fragrant triumph that was taking place going through these streets. And Paul here, he says that we are a Christ-like aroma. This is the, the picture that he's trying to draw, the, the imagery that he's presenting here, the connection that he's making. He says in verse 15 that we are the fragrance of Christ. Now get this, we are the fragrance of Christ first to God 
and then among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So we are, as believers, a Christ-like aroma to first God and then to men. And so considering how it is that we are a, a Christ-like aroma to God, this is a, a concept that is difficult for us to, to imagine, to wrap our minds around. Uh, but we have to realize that, again, we are in Christ when we are this this aroma, this fragrance to God. If we were just in ourselves, we would be a very wretched smell to God, right? Because we are, again, by nature, we are children of wrath, even as a rest. We, are, we have nothing to offer in and of ourselves. We are uh, stinky, smelly, rotten fish, right? But in Christ, we are this blessed, glorious aroma to the Lord. Uh, let's look at Isaiah chapter 1. We're going to go Old Testament for a moment and see what God thinks of our, our natural offerings to him. In Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 11, it says, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? God speaking. What are all these sacrifices that you're bringing to me? I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats. God doesn't seem very pleased with their offerings. Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me and I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. That's the perception that, that God has of our, our prayers, our incense, any righteousness that we have on our own. It, on our own, it's just filthy rags. It's not at all pleasing to God. We have to bring uh, a, a fragrance that is found to be in Christ. Going into the New Testament, we can look in Romans 12 and we can see that Paul talks about bringing a sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord, about presenting your body as a, a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. Uh, he talks about being poured out as a drink offering uh, a couple of times in the New Testament. Second Timothy 4.3 and Philippians 2.12, he says, I am poured out as a, a drink offering unto the Lord. He is offering himself up as a, a fragrant smell to the Lord, but he is doing it in Christ. That is what makes us a, a pleasing aroma to the Lord is being in Christ. And notice, secondly, that again, back in verse 15, we are indeed a, a fragrance of Christ to God, but we are also a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing that we are not only a fragrance to God, but we are also a fragrance to men. We are in the world and not of the world, but while being in the world, we interact with the world. We have a, a mark that we leave on the world. And there are two different groups of men that we can pull out and we can see here in verse 15 that we are a, a fragrant aroma to those who are being saved and also to those who are perishing that um, it's interesting, in fact, that these believers and unbelievers are defined by their destination, by where they're going to end up, that they are either going to be saved or they are those who are perishing. It's 
uh, whether or not they are in Christ or out of Christ, that really marks their identity, that marks who they are. And again, taking our, our minds back to this Roman triumph, this would be a, a completely aromatic experience to be walking through this triumph, to be smelling all these different things going on, the, the perfume and the flowers and the incense, all these things going on. And this smell would be a reminder both to the captives that were walking through, knowing that they're likely about to lose their life in just a, a matter of moments, that they're going to be sacrificed, that they're going to be killed, and they're being paraded through to their death. And, and they're smelling all this stuff, and it, it probably doesn't smell quite as good to them as it does to the, the victorious army, the soldiers that are marching through. This one triumph has two different meanings to, to two different groups. This smell, this aroma that's coming up as they're walking through this parade. Two different meanings to two different groups. And the, our, our sense of smell is just amazing. The way that it can um, kind of spur on our, our mind or our memories. Uh, in fact, it's spurred on multi-billion dollar industries trying to recreate these different smells, the smell of uh, summer or the smell of Christmas or certain foods, because uh, we, we realize that the way that God has designed our mind to work to associate these unique smells is amazing. The fact that we can uh, smell something, we can be kind of taken back and, and transported to, to grandma's house or to the mountains, or to the lake, just by a, a simple sniff, right? Or we can uh, even be transported kind of through time, back to our childhood, or back to our adolescence, or uh, to, to high school, um, to these different periods of time. Uh, perhaps your, your high school experience of, of smells was uh, more, more herbal than it, it ought to have been. Um, <laughs> There, there aren't really a whole lot of good smells that are associated with high school, especially public high school, right? Uh, cigarettes and, and body odor and cheap cologne. Um, smells have a way of, of transferring you back to places. And again, as these both captives and victorious soldiers were marching through the street, um, this fragrance would be hitting their nose and it would have different meanings to these two different groups. Just as fire can both warm and, and burn, it can comfort and destroy, or as, as water can refresh or it can destroy, it, it brings life and also has the potential to bring death. Well, this fragr fragrance that uh, these people were, were smelling, it had uh, two different meanings to these two different groups. And uh, we, can, we can see that again, verse 15, that among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to the one it was an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And their reaction to Christ through his disciples is indicative of their end. To the one, it's a smell of death to death. And to the other, it's a smell of life to life. This is the connection that Paul's trying to, to draw. That as a Christian, as somebody who represents Christ, the aroma that you put off, it's going to smell different to different people. If somebody smells it as a, a poor aroma, as a negative aroma, that's going to lead to their, their ultimate death. If somebody's smelling it as a good, pleasing aroma, uh, that's indicative of their end of life. And you might, you might start to worry and think, okay, well, there are plenty of people that 
aren't happy with how I smell as a Christian, right? With the, the scent that I put off as a Christian. They, they don't like me talking about Jesus. They don't like me talking about church. And, and these things are kind of a, a downer to them. Does that mean that they are, are headed to death? Uh, well, I think absolutely that repeat exposure is, is necessary. When we're dealing with our interactions with the unbelieving world, we have to uh, continue to... Uh, to preach the gospel to them. Christianity is an acquired smell, right? Not everybody immediately likes how, how Christians smell. Um, it's been said that uh, a Christian has heard the gospel presented to them some seven times before they actually respond uh, favorably to the gospel. And just because you smell like death to somebody today doesn't mean that that's always going to be the case. We need to continue to bring the gospel to them, um, being faithful to, to present the truth of God's glory to them. Uh, several years ago, maybe seven or eight years ago, there was a, a man in my life that I shared the gospel with repeatedly, over and over again. And this man was completely antagonistic towards the gospel, towards God. He outwardly hated God. He had no qualms with saying that. Uh, he was a, a staunch atheist. And I remember even thinking that if there's any man in any person in my life that that is beyond the grace of God it's this man and God turned his heart and he while at, at one point he would never bow the knee to Jesus now he is in in love with our savior he's in love with the lord he has no um no greater joy than the gospel of Christ and um we shouldn't be again surprised by the fact that people are going to respond to the, the truth of the gospel in a negative way. The cross, after all, is foolishness to those who are perishing, right? First Corinthians 1.18. But to those of us who are, are born again, it, it's completely different. It has a completely different smell, completely different aroma. Uh, Jesus, in John chapter 15, as he was preparing his disciples for his death, in John 15, starting verse 18, he says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Again, we're we should expect that we're going to have different responses from different people um, based upon whether or not they are in Christ or out of Christ. Looking at the, the end of verse 16, Paul asks a, a question here, a seemingly rhetorical question. He says, who is adequate for these things? I think Paul is just really uh, exaggerating and saying, can you believe this? The fact that we serve a, a triumphant Christ, and that those of us who are in Christ, we are triumphant through him. We have this vicarious victory, victory through Christ uh, that we get to be his ambassadors. We get to be his representatives. We get to smell like Jesus. What a privilege that we have, not only to be triumphant in Christ, but to be this representation to the world. We get to smell like him, uh, a smell that's for some leading to life, a smell that is for some leading to death. This is indeed an undeserved privilege. This is amazing grace. And he will go on in, in the next chapter, and he will uh, address this 
uh, slightly in verse 5 and 6 of chapter 3. He says, Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. So Paul is recognizing we are, we are not at all adequate. Our adequacy comes from God. He is the one who makes us capable. He is the one who makes us able. And this uh, leads us to, to question what is the source of this fragrant aroma, this Christ-like aroma that we have been, that we, we are as Christians. Where does this fragrant aroma come from? And we have to go back and realize that he is the one who has manifested this aroma in us. We see this at the, the very beginning of this passage, back in verse 14, that he is the one who manifests through us this sweet aroma. Um, he is the one who is doing this work. He is one who is working this power, not only in our salvation, but also in our effectiveness, in our, our ministry. It has to be from the power of God. Our, our sanctification even comes from the power of God, that those who he began a good work in, he will complete that good work to the day of salvation. He is the one who is manifesting and, and revealing and, and making clear through us uh, his salvation. We are just the tool. We are just the, the conduit. We are the inter, intermediary means that God has used to proclaim his truth to the world, that we would smell like Jesus, right? Uh, Mark four twenty six and 27 says that the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil and he goes to bed. At night he gets up by day and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself doesn't know. He, he casts the seed, but God is the one who does the work, right? God is the one who is manifesting this work within those who are his. So the source of this aroma is, first of all, God's work within us, his manifesting work within us. And second of all, it is the, the speech of those who are going out and proclaiming the truth of his word. Look at verse 17. 2 Corinthians 2.17 says, For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. And so this is uh, really Paul commending the, the Christian's approach over and against the approach of these false apostles, these super apostles who had come into Corinth, remember we've talked about, and, and they are perverting the truth of God's word. They are peddling the, the truth of God's word. And Paul says, we're, we're not peddling the truth of God's word. We're not out here looking for money. We're not out here looking for, for power or prestige, any kind of selfish gain. He says, we're out here with sincerity. We are genuine. That word for sincerity we've looked at before is to be tested by the sun to determine whether or not a, a piece of pottery is truly good or if it might perhaps be cracked and have been filled in deceitfully with, with wax to uh, temporarily make it sellable. And Paul is pointing to these other false apostles and he's saying, no, they are the, the peddlers. They are the, the hucksters. They are the con men who actually will sell a, a piece of pottery that has just been filled in with wax. It's only going to temporarily hold these other apostles, these are the, the con men who will take their, their bad fruit from their fruit stand, put it in a basket, and they'll cover it up with good fruit and try to sell it at, at normal price. Or they'll water down their wine and they'll sell it to you. And not only are they doing that with, with these goods, but they're doing that with the word of God. They are perverting the holy word of God. 
They are prostituting the truth as savage wolves, as false apostles. And Paul says, that's not at all who we are. We are coming to you in sincerity. We are coming to you literally from God, that God is the one who has sent them. Um, God has put his stamp of approval upon them, upon this Christian message. Next week, we're going to be looking at uh, the, the letters of recommendation, the, the references of sorts that Paul speaks of. And he says to the Corinthians, you guys, you are our letter of recommendation. You are our, our stamp of approval. And here, Paul is saying that he is approved by God, that he is an approved workman, that he doesn't need a letter of approval, that he is legitimately commissioned by God himself. He's not a hireling, but he is a, a qualified God called messenger of God, a shepherd to this beloved church. And he is identified as such because of his speech. You see that at the end of verse 17, he says that we speak in Christ in the sight of God. And again, in addition to being manifested by, by God to, to him sending us and, and giving his, his power and his strength, and that is why we are um, able to have this aroma as Christians. We are able to have the, the aroma of Christ because of our, our speech. Speaking is the, the primary way in which our, our fragrance is manifested. This is how people will breathe in the, the aroma of Jesus. It's through our words. And when I read this, I kind of envision people walking around with uh, one of those Febreze air fresheners, right? And kind of spraying this as they're, they're walking, as they're speaking, uh, spraying out this... Uh, Jesus sent, I suppose. And uh, whenever we come here and we, we clean the church, spring the Febreze in the different rooms, that's my kids' favorite task, their favorite chore, is to go through and, and spray it. And I have to be very specific when I tell them, okay, you do two sprays in each room. If I just tell them that, then they're going to do one long spray and, and, and then the bottle's gone, right? Um, so I have to tell them, okay, two, two quick sprays. And uh, if only we... We had that kind of issue as Christians. That would be a, a very good thing, realizing that um, that our speech is in fact the source of our our Christ-like aroma. We need to be careful and and calculated and accurate in how it is that we speak. Uh, what a terrible thing it would be if we were to misrepresent Christ with an odor that doesn't accurately represent him or accurately reflect him. Uh, we know that every careless word is going to be judged in the day of judgment, and that where there are many words, transgression is, is unavoidable. So we need to be careful with our speech. As Jeremy was speaking before in Galatians chapter 6, if we sow to the flesh and we will reap corruption, we need to be careful with the words that we speak. Our our speech should, in fact, have the unique odor of Christianity. Uh, and, and not the testaments out in the lobby, right? That's not the odor of Christianity. The odor of Christianity is the, the love of Christ, the grace of, of Christ, the truth of the gospel. I'm, I'm sure that you've heard the, the popular tome that we are to, to preach the gospel at all times and, if necessary, use words. And, and while that's a, a nice sentiment, it's really a, a garbage quote. Uh, yes, our, our lifestyle should reflect and align with our gospel proclamation, but 
we have to preach the gospel. We can't preach the gospel without preaching. Uh, Romans 10.17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How will they hear without a preacher? That doesn't mean a, a pastor. It's not talking about an ordained minister. That's talking about a smelly Christian who's going out and telling people about the, the gospel of Christ. We need to keep preaching at the world until our, our smelly Christian breath becomes to the world a sweet aroma of Christ that is of, of life unto life. We need to preach the gospel at all times, even if to some the truth smells pretty rank. Uh, if it smells like Jesus, then that's a clear win. Even if it's not received gladly and not embraced by the world, we can't be so worried about pleasing men that we fail to speak, that we neglect to, to pull that spray nozzle and tell people about the truth of Christ. If, if that's the approach we take, then, yeah, perhaps we're not going to smell quite as bad to the world, but it'll only because, be because we don't smell like Jesus. And we shouldn't let that be said of anybody at Orchard Hills. Let's go out and let's smell like Jesus, even if it's not enjoyed by the world, if it's not embraced by the world. There is no better smell, no greater reality than the truth of the gospel. And we should count it a privilege to proclaim the truth of the gospel, realizing that we are, in fact, triumphant in Christ. Even in the midst of, of trials and, and persecution and hardships, Christ our Lord, he is the triumphant one. And if we are in Christ, we ourselves are triumphant. This is the, the reality that Christ is triumphant and that we are in Christ. The result of this reality is that in us, there is, in fact, a, a Christ-like aroma, both to God and to men, to those who are perishing and to those who are being saved. And to some, it's going to be understood as a, a good smell, as some, some will understand it as a, a rotten smell. And the root of this smell, of this fragrance, the cause of this smell, is his manifesting work in us and our speech amidst a, a dying and a perverse world. We need to seek to represent him well as his believers, as those who have been given this privilege to smell like Jesus. Let's pray. God, we do thank you that you have given us your truth, that you've given us your word. We pray that we would be a, an aroma of Christ. And we realize that we're going to not always be received well because of who we are in Christ, but we do pray that we would see fruit, that we would see those who who know the, the truth of God's word because of your people and they respond to that favorably, that they will have life in you because of the life that we have in you that you've given us to, to proclaim to the world. God, we are in a, a crooked world. We ask that you would help us to shine as stars in the midst of this crooked and dying and perverse world that we would be set apart as you, smelling like Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen.